Mark stood up to show us his shorts and then disconnected his audio. (laughs) (laughs) Was it worth it? Yes. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Good day. And tablet editor at large and large editor Liel Leibowitz. As large as ever. Two fun interviews this week. No Gentiles this week. It's a Gentile-free show. We've scrubbed the show of Gentiles. We've canceled them all. And if you're a Gentile listener, um, I don't know. I don't know if you want to roll with us this week. If you're a Gentile listener, it's the summer of Jews. That's right. You can listen in. We're going we're gonna to say the shit that we say when we don't think the Gentiles are in the room. Like, there's not enough food here. <laughs> that costs way too much. You paid what? You guys cry. Two Jews. Uh, these interviews are from months back, you know, back in that whole other world. The first is with Noah Rubin, who is one of the few Jewish tennis stars out there today. And, uh, you know, possibly one of the 10 greatest Jews ever to play tennis. I mean, that's the kind of thing you can say with Jewish tennis stars. And we also spoke with Professor Jenny Kaplan, who wrote an article that was so great. We reached out to her after we found her article analyzing the situation comedy Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and the stereotypes of Ashkenazi Jewish women. And her argument is that the Jap stereotype is outdated and we need a new stereotype for which the acronym is MAW. And she will explain that to you. But um, some some tennis, some Japiness. It's like it's like we're on North Shore, Long Island right now. It's like we're just there. We've got stereotypes. We've got tennis. I don't even know what's missing. Speaking of which, Stephanie, where are you right now? I will say that yeah, this 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 episode really suits me. I don't know if on Zoom you can get the full effect of where I am sitting, but I'm sitting in an attic closet at my parents' house on Long Island. I'm in this magical closet that I feel like every attic has where I just found like a trap door and I I was like, oh my God. And then I opened it and it's just like that scary ventilation room that exists in every (laughs) attic or basement. (laughs) You had such hopes. Yeah, I was like, this is so great. You thought you were going to go into Narnia and instead you walked right into the air compressor. What secrets (laughs) are buried in the Butnik attic? This is Howie's closet because I I, I tilted the camera up. Can you see it's just a bunch of old suits? I see a lot of of white suits there. There's a pair of corduroy pants that are like right here. I'm sort of like resting on them as a blanket. There's a lot of old electronics here. I have like Mm. my mic propped up with a lot of like those old really big remotes. I actually see what I think is a typewriter in the corner. It's a Smith Corona and the aptly named Smith Smith Corona Corona, typewriter. Yeah. And what I've made my recording setup is on one of these like big plastic boxes. And inside of it is a bunch of the little cassette tapes from video cameras. You know what I'm talking about? Like those little guys. Oh, did they label them? Yeah, I'm looking. Hold on. I see one that says Western Wall. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you sort of we switch to VHS tapes. And then you see like Stephanie's Bat Mitzvah highlights. Uh-huh. That's on VHS. <gasps> um, Wait, Stephanie, you have a VHS tape labeled Stephanie's Bat Mitzvah highlights? Yes, but I have no place to play it. Stephanie, I will get a chess player. I will go to to Josh Cross. I, Josh, can you do this, or do I? Do I have to go to the AV people at Yale's Video Center to do this? Well, I have my bar mitzvah tape as well, guys, um, and I've been meaning to get it converted. So I think we can figure something out here, guys. For the love of God, this is a must. This is a must. This is simple. We will discuss afterwards. Like what? <laughs> oh, you guys are going to freak. You don't understand. My my bar mitzvah was so good. Oh, I don't doubt it. My dress was like a fuchsia. It was so cool. It was like that raw silk that everyone had. Oh my God, those were the glory days. I wore a tiara. Oh my. So you were actually in the closet of 1985 to 2005, basically, is where you are. Right yeah, it's, ama- it's, it's a really happy place for me right now. I envy you so much. Liel, any, <laughs> top that. I could try. I'm not in a closet, but here's where I was two nights ago. I was in a drive-in. When was the last time you guys been to a drive-in movie theater? I've never been to a drive-in. Never Although, been. Although, given my obsession oh with my all God. things gone, I right. should go. This is uh, this is Oppenheimer. This is the promised land for you. This is Primo Americana. Mm-hmm. So there's a really amazing drive-in movie theater nearby, by which I mean to say there's a really amazing muddy field nearby. <laughs> Uh, on top of which they put up a little sheet and a projector and they charge like $8 to watch a double feature. The double feature this weekend was E.T. and Jaws. It's like the greatest one-two punch. But here's the thing. I sat there and watched E.T. after not seeing E.T. for probably, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years. And 
it really brought home the point. You know, a few years ago, Tablet Magazine had a list of the most Jewish movies ever made, and E.T. topped the list. Watching that film, oh my God, is this thing a profoundly freaking Jewish film. It's like, here's an alien. He's smarter than everyone. A righteous Gentile hides him. The rest of the Gentiles, <laughs> they try to catch him. Will he escape in time? Yes. Where does he go? He goes to a planet where everyone is like him, his kind, where he's safe. It's like alien Zionism at the end of this movie. It's a fantastic Jewish film. It's more Jewish than Schindler's List, basically. That this well, is his really Jewish opus, Spielberg. Right. I mean, look, it, it, I wrote the entry to Schindler's List calling it the least Jewish movie ever made because it's basically right. about a Christ-like figure, like a righteous Gentile saving all these helpless Jews. E.T. is about, you know, one clever alien who's always an outsider to the culture, outsmarting the Goyim, basically, and then uh, returning to his own planet where he belongs. You've had very profound weeks. All I can say for my week, and this is... This is truth. This is Emmis, as they say. Wait, can we bring back Emmis? I'm like kind of upset. So, like- you know who says Emmis? My Aunt Elise, who grew up, you know, she's my dad's eldest sister. Her parents were not Yiddish speakers, but she has a lot of Jewish friends. And, and her husband, Dave, is from a family where they spoke some Yiddish. She says Emmis. I love it. It's true. You know, truth. This is truth. I'll give you some. This is Emmis. Yeah. Can we bring it back? You or Stephanie? You're- Although I feel if we bring it back, the multiple sclerosis people would sue us. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be culturally appropriating. Is it E-M-E-S? In Yiddish, it's, it's E-M-E-S-S. And what does it mean? Truth? Truth. Truth. It's it's emet in Hebrew and Yiddish, emes. By the way, I love that voice you put on anytime you say anything, anytime you transliterate anything. Is it condescension or Jewiness? Which are you referring it's Jewy- to? It's like you literally, it's, you you affect I get Jewishness. Jewy. I love it's, it. It's, it's, it's shtetl face is what it is. I, it's, it's E-T face. <laughs> yeah, pickle oh, face. <laughs> yeah, I do that. And it's a little embarrassing. It's because that I have accents I slide into right there's a little jackie mason buried deep inside you that's like ah, maybe it is maybe it well isn't. it's also that i'm a mimic in addition to that thing i also talk like the people i'm talking to which is embarrassing as well but you want ms the most exciting thing to happen to me this week was that my order from birdwell finally arrived you guys know what birdwell is birdwell is I this sure old do. kind of 60s era original southern california surf brand and they still make their clothes in santa Ana. It's heritage wear, basically. And they make short corduroy shorts. And I've been looking for years for corduroy shorts with a short inseam, like a a little bit racy, but also a little bit retro. Like they used, you know, 70s shorter shorts. To have short shorts in corduroy is kind of the holy grail. But they only came in 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 my waist size in a kind of golden, like graham cracker brown, which my family hates. And they keep saying, like, when are you sending those back? I'm going to show you since we're on Zoom. Oh, wow. Oh, those are glorious. They're not that short. Oh. They are kind of short. Oh, no. When you sit down, they are definitely short. I think they're fucking awesome. <laughs> I just want to cut in and say. Mark, I am delighted that the that the corduroy Rav has his summer <laughs> Hasidic outfit at last. I mean, I will say the part I'm most impressed by is like that mustard yellow. It's very, very. So here's the thing is we, marooned as I am with these rubes in New England. Nobody no, understands. No, they're mustard yellow. They're not maroon. That nobody understands <laughs> that I'm rocking something classic and retro yeah. and that I'm at the cutting edge of the old edge. And so no I just get mocked. That. Nobody understands it. And so, but they make me feel so good. And I do that thing that Sid always mocks me for, which is when I get an article of clothing I like, I wear it nonstop for two weeks and then I forget about it. But I haven't worn another pair of shorts in six days. And I'm so happy. Okay, enough about the threes of us. Little news of the Jews. The world of dumb anti-Semitic remarks by celebrities keeps on trucking. Uh, Nick Cannon is atoning. He finally did apologize after CBS Viacom uh, fired him for his uh, dumb pro-Farrakhan comments. So Nick Cannon, who apparently still has his show, even though I thought he was fired, but he actually just lost a production deal with Viacom, (laughs) is now going to be hosting elderly Jewish rabbis on The Masked Singer. This is how he's going to tone for the Jews. He has like an interview show. This is where this all started. It's called like Cannon's Corner or something like that. He's like the new Charlie Rose. Like, what? I hadn't heard of this guy until two weeks ago. 
really? I'm just telling you, I think this will take the mass Singer to a whole new <laughs> level. It's like, uh, I think the giant chicken is uh, Shmuley Boteach. No, it is Rabbi Marvin Heyer. Oh, God. I will say, though, we've had several prominent figures speaking out against this, right? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote a really, really thoughtful piece about the problem with anti-Semitism in sports. And Jamel Hill wrote something for The Atlantic that was really, really interesting about anti-Semitism blind spots in the sports community. And then also um, Charles Barkley, I heard, said something yes. recently. Like, So I think that's great. It is great. I mean, much gratitude to the people who are actually saying anti-Semitism is bad, but the bar is so low. I mean, it's like, I'm going to be Liel for a moment when he goes on this rant, like no other community. And then people sometimes say like, actually, no, this happens to other communities. Of course, lots of communities have to deal with bigotry and antipathy and fear, but the outrage, the level of disdain that you would get if you spoke out about African-American people this way or queer people this way within the elite media sphere, within the, the, the liberal, the admittedly liberal media sphere, the outrage would be so profound. And here we kind of have just accepted there's going to be a certain low level of anti-Semitism. It's going right. to pop up. We have to, and, and the evidence, Madonna, it turns out, somehow we missed this, but Madonna posted on Instagram a video from Louis Farrakhan that ends with graphics saying nationofislam.org, watch our video, watch Minister Farrakhan. Madonna? To learn more, log on to theholocaustneverhappened.net. And we're so, I think even Jews are so inured to it by now. We're just like, yep, that's that's how it is. But I mean, that that is how it is, right? That's, that's the past 2,000 years. And it's cyclical and it always seems to come back. And, you know, I think about this sometimes in the moment we've been in where I've seen some intellectuals, black and white and other, writing about how, like, if we want to end racism, we must do X or we have to read so-and-so's book. Or we have to, and I'm thinking, like, you think you can end these things? I mean, I'm all for trying but we're not going to end anti-Semitism. Ask the Jews if you can end it. It's not It's not ending. So the funny thing about Madonna's video is like Madonna has gotten so deep into Kabbalah. She calls herself Esther. She wears a Jewish star. Like from her, it's actually this like complete disjointed schizophrenic like who, no. who are you, Esther? It's not. Her anti-Semitism is as fake as her Judaism. Like this person is so freaking vapid. She can't even get like her commitments and her antipathies right. But I will say this to me speaks to the point I was making last week, which is I don't think people like are grasping Farrakhan's other things he's saying, right? Like, I don't think Madonna, who is like very LGBTQ friendly, would do that if she knew. Or I don't know how to really wrap my mind around the fact that Farrakhan has sort of transcended all these other things about him. And he's like deproblematized for a lot of people. Stephanie, wait a second, though. Yeah. It was just, what, two years ago that Tablet Magazine was running articles about people prominent in the Women's March who also were cozy with Farrakhan or had professed admiration for him. So we're, it's, we're not that far from the last iteration of the news cycle in which Farrakhan was pretty prominent. So I'm not sure why you say, oh, wait a second, he's from that whole anti-Semitism thing was 30 years ago. People today don't remember it. Wasn't it just in the news? I guess what I'm wondering is how is it possible that someone like Madonna, who was around for all of this other stuff, would sort of like isolate one part of Louis Farrakhan? And I'm, that's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of, I think, like how so many celebrities can be okay with this person or whether they just don't Really, can't. I mean, it's almost like the two of you are saying that we shouldn't really take advice in serious political, spiritual matters from absolute vapid morons. I try to make this point periodically that athletes, celebrities, actors, they're good at the thing they're good at. And it, we look to them for moral and political leadership at our peril. And when they're thoughtful and when they know what they're talking about, we're really grateful. But the thing that they're famous for is not nuanced political philosophical so then, thinking. But then, how about this? We shouldn't take Madonna, like we shouldn't be obsessed with Madonna then for taking on Kabbalah. I mean, we're guilty of it too, right? We write about her a lot. Like this idea when she calls herself Esther and she really identifies with the Purim story, then actually maybe maybe you're right, Mark. And it pains me to say this, that maybe you're right. Um, but <laughs> I think you're right. We, we do take such stock in what celebrities say. Yeah. I mean, you hear about those great grandparents who came over from the old world and the kid wanted to grow up to be an actor or an athlete. And they said, that's no job for a, a Jewish kid. Like, w get your head in the books and do something meaningful. And I, you look at Matana, you're like, that's no job for Esther. <laughs> that's just, just sing. Go, go live on La Isla Bonita and live out your days. What is the disconnect there then? Is it just that celebrities are stupid and they like one thing this guy says and they don't do the work? Yep. You're sincerely asking how could she be so stupid? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm because because like a lot of people want to write Farrakhan off as unimportant. 
And, oh, Madonna, who, you know, oh, she just posted a video. What does it matter? I mean, I guess I'm trying to parse the significance of all this. I don't think she watched till the end. Because if you watch just the first a minute 30 out of the minute 46, it's just like footage about horrible things that have been done to people as America has been built, all of which is true. Enslavement, dispossession of native lands, et cetera. And it's a, a resonant African-American inflected voice speaking over it. And it's Farrakhan's, but you don't know that till you get to the, I don't think she watched to the end. She was just looking for something to post on social media. So guys, I feel very strongly that we should no longer obsess over celebrities. And I want to share with you our third news of the Jews item, Ooh. which is a very serious, high-minded piece of news, which is that Brooklyn Beckham, the 21-year-old son of David and Victoria Beckham, announced his engagement to 25-year-old Jewess heiress Nicola Peltz. Oh, one of us. To which I could say, I could say two things really come to mind. First of all, I'm anticipating after a particularly good Shabbos meal, when young Brooklyn Beckham says the blessings after the food, that someone will say, I wish I could bench it like Beckham. (laughs) (laughs) And then a day later, uh, when Shabbos ends and they want to do a Havdalah ceremony, I bet you they have a very posh spice box. (laughs) Oh, this is amazing because so I'm not familiar with Nelson Peltz, a Jewish billionaire and hedge fund manager who is estimated to be worth around one point five billion dollars. You don't have the Nelson Peltz billionaire hedge fund playing card. He he has 10 children and he reportedly spent more than two million dollars on the bar mitzvah of his twin sons, which makes sense because if you're that's split between two people, like that's actually oh, pretty, yeah. you know, it's quite reasonable. <laughs> that's quite reasonable. <laughs> and here's the best thing. This this woman, Nicola Peltz, and her brother have matching Yiddish tattoos on their ribs reading family first, which I'm actually curious what that's what that is in Yiddish. And maybe we should all get that tattooed. Oh, God. But, you know, this is the, David something. Beckham has claimed Jewish her- ancestry before. Right. I was going to say he's somewhat Jewish and the Peltz kids are apparently their mother was not ancestrally Jewish, but they were raised uh, in the tradition. And so it's this smorgasbord of, of Yechus. All I want to know is, will the kids named Brooklyn What's the next generation of naming? Like, will it be a little Staten Island Beckham? It's like Gowanus. No, the next generation of name is like Crown Heights. It's like 770 Beckham. 770 Beckham. But I will say, (laughs) David Beckham actually has the best Hebrew tattoo, which is like the I Am My Beloved, the the Song of Songs. Anila Dudi. Amazing. So welcome 770 Beckham to the tribe. Guys, we reached out to former Wimbledon Junior single champion Noah Rubin back in January to talk about tennis and what it's like playing such a Jew-free sport. He was fabulous. Noah Rubin. He is a Jewish American tennis player. He's a former Wimbledon Junior Singles champion. And more important, he had a tennis themed bar mitzvah. Welcome. Thank you for having me today. (laughs) So let's start with your bar mitzvah. Oh, God. What Uh, was like each table decoration? Literally my face at different tournaments throughout my junior career. My mom had a field day absolute field day and obviously you can pick like the montage and people taking pictures with rackets and the whole deal and it was extremely embarrassing but worse when people went to my childhood home it is still there for people to see today which is well they had those photos blown up so they may as well use them (laughs) (laughs) we should have burned them so tennis was your thing your defining element right at that point in your life yeah and and still yeah I was I had a racket put in my crib from day one and so I didn't really have much of a choice but I enjoyed it. Your dad's one of your coaches, right? Or has, has coached you a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's uh, kind of my manager to this day, but taught me how to play tennis from a guy that really didn't know how to play tennis back in the day. So again, didn't have much of a choice, played a lot of sports, but this is what I decided. What's your ranking as of today in the world? It's like 250 in the world. Okay. Dropped a little bit. It's all right. Well, we'll you, you can <laughs> still, be, still be on our podcast. Uh, <laughs> that is so amazing to me to have this world ranking thing. Right. Imagine you could say like, I'm one of the 
best 250 people in the world at, at something. At this thing. That's incredible. And and we should, before we go any further, as the official podcast of Jewish chauvinists everywhere, <laughs> I mean, there have not been that many elite Jewish tennis players. We got, I mean, I remember Aaron Krikstein from when I was younger. Of course. You. <laughs> who, and who a bunch else? of Israelis, right? Who else? Yeah, uh, a few Amos Israelis. Monsdorf I'm actually Gilad. pretty friends with Judy Sella. Actually, somebody who I worked with closely when I was younger is Jay Berger. Probably the highest ranked Jewish tennis player. He was about six in the world at one point. But since tennis players have gotten better, like you'd probably <laughs> dust him at his peak because tennis players are it's like better not now. wearing the right sneakers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he has a, a tiny racket. He had the wood racket, maybe the, the like the old like Dunlop graphite that Jimmy Connors played with. Absolutely like, painful to pick up today. Yes, like it may be that you have played tennis at a better level than any other Jew since Sinai. <laughs> is that is, since the tennis courts? At right. Sinai, since the tennis courts. Right. That's yeah. right. That's. Fair to say at times. I don't want to say it. Obviously, you have other guys like Diego Schwartzman. I actually just spoke about like his Fair Holocaust point. and other mm-hmm. stuff like that. Fair point. But yeah, I'm, I'm one of few. At You're this one point. of very, yeah, very, very few. few. It's it's so so the journey. Your dad puts the tennis racket in your crib. Yes. And like, at what point did you say, Yeah, I think I want this to be my life till I'm 27 <laughs> and wash out with an injury? Sorry, just that's <laughs> wow. no, no, no. It's, it's, <laughs> things got dark real soon. <laughs> no, it's bound to happen. Don't worry, it's inevitable. But it was kind of around 11, 12 years old when I started playing internationally, traveling on my own played the world championships which were in Paris called La Petiras and finaled it and I was like oh I guess I must be okay at what I do now but again it started from an early age I was just playing hours a day okay here's what I want to know yes please Um, you get on the court (laughs) the match about to start Mm mm-hmm what goes through your mind? Are you kind of zooming out and getting into this like zone in which you're just in kind of like match mode? Like, what are you thinking? There used to be a lot more thoughts going through my head when I first started, but now there's just so many tennis matches that I played that I was just like, let's just enjoy it. Let's get out there. And actually, and I'm not just saying this because I'm here on the show right now, because I used to sing songs on the court that really got me in the mode. I used to sing Hebrew songs. And now you guys are going to nitpick it. I get that. But that's literally. No, we're I not going to nitpick. That. We're going to ask you to sing a Hebrew song. That's <laughs> <laughs> nitpick. That's the best thing we've heard. What songs no. are we talking? I, I can't do this right now because I, I, <laughs> I already know that the person before me was singing songs. And I don't are you doing be like Hava Megillah as you're I, I swear my defeating life. Raphael Nadal? That is 100% what I was doing. And for whatever reason, because I was singing and then it got to Hebrew songs. And honestly, I wasn't going to sing uh, that often at that point, but it was still in me at that time. I don't know what it was, but that actually got me through it's, matches. It's that bar mitzvah, but I love that image, right? You're standing there in the court and you're playing and to focus yourself and to get the energy My level. My father right? asked me, he's like, yeah, you just saying. Is that a joke? Like, what was happening out there? I was like, I can't tell it's you. like, is that a nigun you're saying? <laughs> but I mean, I do understand what you're saying because Whenever I hear someone sing a Jewish prayer, it's at such a deep place in my brain from Hebrew school that I don't even know where it comes from, but I know all the words, even if I've never been to a service since. It's unbelievable. And the first few times that I was doing it, I started laughing. I was like, no, this is yeah, <laughs> like, where'd gone. that come from? It's a Hebrew high school or uh, whatever it was, junior congregation for five, six years now. Where in the world did this come from? There's this tension at the heart of an athlete who's also a thoughtful, smart guy like you. I mean, you've got this podcast that you're doing behind the racket, right? Yes. Do you want to, first of all, tell people a little bit about that. And then I want to ask you about the tension that I see in your life. That I'm, <laughs> going to, I'm going to analyze you right here and now. But tell Please. us about the work you're doing with the podcast. This started kind of, I call it a project because it encompasses so many different things. But it started actually now a year ago. I just wanted to look deeper into the world of tennis. I knew when I got to my high ranking of 125, things didn't get better for me mentally. I didn't feel like I was in a place of happiness, of content. So I was looking at other players and figuring out that they're kind of in the same spot that I was in. And that's when I really had to dive deeper into what makes us who we are, why aren't we talking about the issues that we're all dealing with? And that's when I branched out into the blog, into the podcast to really understand that these players are dealing with some really tough things day in, day out. And the issues being, first of all, there's not a lot of money if you're not like top 50 or so. I mean, anywhere below that, you're basically living, you can't afford a coach, you pay your own travel, you have no health care. You've done your research. Yeah. And mental health (laughs) stuff as well, right? It's tough. I mean, obviously the financials come into that because once you can't afford a coach or a trainer or a team, you're kind of traveling on your own, you know, week in, week out to some, not the best places in the world. (laughs) Obviously people see, you know, the Parises, you know, the Melbournes of the world. And I love that. Right. uh, Fortunate enough to see that. But then you have... The less glamorous. in Texas. The, the Irkutsk Open in Siberia, which you're, yeah. I mean, my friends are in like Tashkent and obviously, <laughs> you know, not talking down to these places, they obviously have a lot not. to offer. It's not Paris. But it's not Paris. It's and not Paris. So the writer David Foster Wallace wrote a couple great essays. One was about Tracy Austin, wrote a great essay about, I think it was Pete Sampras. And one of his arguments was that one of the things that made Tracy Austin great was that actually her mind was vacant, that actually 
all she thought was tennis and she actually believed all the cliches about like, you know, second place is first loser and winning is everything. All those things coaches tell you. Mm-hmm. Like I remember them on the wall as we walked up to the wrestling room <laughs> in high school. It was like all just the cliches were if you believe these, you'll be a champion. Your problem is, and a lot of the most thoughtful, really like intelligent athletes is like you understand that A, there's things outside of sports. There's life beyond the stuff. You're thinking about other things. You're thinking about mental health. So does the fact that you actually have an emotional life that you're in touch with make it hard to believe all that matters is winning U.S. Open? First of all, it's exhausting. You know, I just find myself like falling asleep while I'm walking because there's so many thoughts in my head. But beyond that, it's, you know, what we call in tennis, it's see ball, hit ball. You see a tennis ball come to you and you hit it because it's just instinctive. You've done it a thousand times. When I see a ball come to me, I'm like, okay, what's the weather outside? What's happening over there? What should I do here? There's so many thoughts that come into play. So yes, there is a graph you could look at, but once it hits a certain point, that thought actually starts to take away from your tennis style. Right. And, and then it's just a snowball effect after that. So I have a question about this list. I know that if I was ranked on any kind of list, I would be doing Dude, nothing. You nothing. are the number one Jewish podcaster in the world. That's Correct. Okay. I was, but tied, tied if I was for, number, if I was number, number four, I yeah, would be obsessing true. with the top three all the time. Do you think about these guys? Do you be like, you know, Rafael Nadal, Djokovic, you know, I hate you. I don't even think it's them that you hate. No, Isn't it's it like... like Federer. 200 to 250. It's hate. some guy who's like 123. You just fucking hate that dude. <laughs> no, it's And it's... he beat you six and five one time. You just fucking hate that dude. <laughs> you sounded like a tennis player. That was, that was good. <laughs> but no, it's more the guys that I've grown up with. Some of the guys like Taylor Fritz, Francis oh, I Diapo, fucking hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> that are now like the 40 in the world. Like when I was like reaching top 100 and they were like 40, I was like, you know, I have a winning record against these guys. Why are they there? I'm here. And then obviously when I drop down, whether. Just because or injury, I'm like, shit, like those are the guys that I need to be next to. And they're obviously enjoying them. I feel like they're enjoying their lives a little bit more. It's like all the bullshit that comes to your head. But do you guys socialize? Is there a kind of like, are you like frenemies or do you only strictly meet on the court and that's No, we're friends. I I mean, we've, we've, this is 10, 12 years now of playing together. So many hours on the court, practice, whatever it is, traveling. We have to be friends with each other. But this is one of the things that behind the racket I was trying to fix is like this toxic masculinity. Like I can't share feelings with you because then you're going to think I'm weaker. That whole deal, that's been a huge issue. So that's why I have friends on tour. Some are closer than others, but most of them are not, I'm not friendly with because you, you can't share. Yeah. yeah, you can't so share that information. Have you, is there, there's clearly a stigma that you're pushing back against, right? This idea that you guys can't share things. Have you gotten pushback more broadly on your project? Or is everyone just like, oh my God, thank you so much. I wanted to talk to someone, but didn't know I could. No, there's definitely some pushback where guys are like, I'm just not at a place to share my story right now. And, you know, if we're at four on the third and I shared my story, my opponent's going to be like, this guy's much weaker than I am. He cried 18 years ago when his mom passed away. And I'm like, that's, there's no correlation there. Like, and that's what I was trying to fix. But again, you see in the locker rooms where you you can be friendly with each other. Apparently on the women's tour, it's even a little more cutthroat. They can't separate the competition as much, it seems like. But the women have been much more open to me to sharing their story than some of the men have. If people were to dive into just two episodes just to get their feet wet with your podcast, yes. what, what are two really good episodes? Ooh, that's tough. We've gotten a lot of great feedback from actually the John Wertheim one that we did and a few of the others, like a Darian King, just looking into it. But I you know, I, I like hearing my own voice. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> tell us about it. <laughs> Join so, the club. Literally, you did already. <laughs> I'm, I'm here. So the ones that I did was just my co-host, my Cation. I really enjoy because those are the ones we can really get into like the nuts and bolts of what we're feeling. And now we have this new 15 minute corner where I just spew my mind because I, I need to get all this stuff out on the table. So some of them just, just talking about the issues that people just don't even see behind the curtains. Nobody has any idea. I mean, especially in the U.S., nobody cares about tennis in the U.S. anymore. You, you go go to the U.S. Open because it's like a place to be. But besides that, nobody has any idea. Because the drinks happening. are amazing. It's the so, honeydews. I mean, come on. How do you get better than it's that? It's so weird because so I was born in 1974. And one of my earliest and best memories was like, I think it was 82. There was this amazing Connors McEnroe semifinal, I want to say, at Wimbledon. Okay. 82, 83. Anyway, there was some amazing Connors McEnroe matches. It was right after Borg had ended his five-year run of winning everything. And 
people cared so much about tennis. I mean, these things are all cyclical, right? I mean, that was around the time they thought the NBA was going to die, right? Like before David Stern came in and saved the NBA a few mm-hmm. years later. They thought, and, you know, and there was a period in the 90s when people thought the NHL was coming, that ice hockey was going to take, they were starting teams in the South, right? Some of which are still. <laughs> <laughs> so these things are all, they were like, yeah, Florida needs an ice hockey team. These things are all cyclical. I mean, do you think about like what would bring tennis back in America? Or am I just here at the wrong moment? Like in 15 years, all, and of course the women's game in America are coming off a period of being super interesting. But how do you relate to that like sense that right, I mean, if it were 1982, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't need wood rackets in my life. No, thank you. <laughs> I, I'm good with my elbow. But yes, I mean, you have women like Coco Golf coming in and these up and coming that you have to think that that's just going to build some hype around it again. But in my head, tennis as a whole is dying out. I've really? Just, yeah, I'm just looking at it right now. And it's one of the least fan-friendly, What's least promotable you? sports of all time. Ask an eight-year-old to sit down for two and a half hours, not say a word, basically not clap for the whole period of time during one match that you're seeing one See, player. See, that's the thing. It's the not clapping. I went to the US Open for the first time last year <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, yeah, finish him. And everyone around me is like, sir, is everything You know okay? what's so interesting is that's one of the arguments they make about, Guys. about classical music or Shakespeare, which was in the 1600s, 1700s, this was the pop culture. So people could whoop and holler and boo. And then we at some point turned it into like- This rarefied- This right. rarefied yeah. highbrow- Thing. So is um, the answer to start cheering at tennis matches with that distraction? In the middle like, of points? Yeah. Oh, I'll come on and you get me some tickets. I'll scream just as you're about to hit that line. <laughs> We're lob. going to Tashkent, guys. <laughs> but okay, so this thing called World Team Tennis, it takes place kind of in the summer. Billie Jean King started it actually. And they have DJs, they have drinks, everybody's drunk, you're going nuts. So maybe not during the points you're screaming, but in the middle, you have DJs, everybody's. That's what you need. You need people to get involved and you need quicker points. You need shorter seasons. It's just you're missing this connection between the fan. But player. I also think you're part of the answer because you're you are relating to fans. I mean, one of the things we remember from the 70s and 80s was like the players were care. I mean, soccer, Pele was out at the discos. There was like these, these you know, <laughs> 78, 79, like McEnroe and Connors and Ilina Stasi and Pele were all at Studio 50. They weren't all just like doing that whole Sampras like health thing where like he has one burger a year. Brands, you know, they weren't worth like seven billion dollars and having like advertising contracts. They were snorting coke off of the roofs of Rolls Royces and partying all night and then playing a quarterfinal. Believe me, we have those players. Don't put (laughs) them aside. We have a few of those. But at the same time, and I've, I I mean, I've said this before. No matter how much the system is broken, I'm looking at these players, players that have been given a racket since day one put out of school, they're very one-dimensional in a lot of ways. And I think that's been a lot of the issue is that they're like, okay, tennis and, and fantasy football. And I'm like, we, we need something else. Like, okay, video games, at least put it on Twitch. Do something that somebody else could be like, okay, this guy is something is that, else to So get. is that what they, these guys in the locker room, like, give me their <laughs> dumbest guy. Like he's, I don't mean name him. It, it it's becomes, fantasy football. That's what he does. It becomes like a frat boy in a way where you're like, okay, you know, girls, fantasy football and tennis. And I'm like, that's all well and fine. But here I am. I'm like I'm going to the art gallery on my own, or I'm doing this on my own. I'm like I Dude, have no you have, friends. Dude, you have to know at least one Nigun from Shul. You have to know at least one Hebrew That's tune. Right. You know what's interesting? <laughs> Hearing you talk about trying to fix tennis, it's sort of the conversations we have about the Jewish right. institutional but world, fixing Judaism, which is basically <laughs> like these synagogues are boring for the most part, right? Like people don't feel like it's fun. People can't clap. People can't get involved. There are places like Romeimu where actually I was the first time I ever saw people in synagogue happy. Having a good time. And, and I think that it's, it's interesting, this idea of bringing the, the joy of the experience back. Yeah, I, I think it's our generation that it's it's needed. We're, we're losing that, the whole idea that, okay, I'm a proud Jew, but how do I get more involved? How do we have other people get, and it's- See, a way to do it is to get like a rabbi ranking. If you're like number <laughs> oh, 250 yes! in America, that'd be great. <laughs> Wow, we could do that ranking, right? Can we? And there's That'd be been, great. There's, it's like a people choice where yeah. you have to yeah, vote. Yeah, and it in. changes it's, all the time. It changes every Friday. Weekly, yeah, it's a weekly thing. <laughs> or maybe reset Sunday sec- so you can give the chance the to get second, their Shabbos. Right, the second Shabbos ends, they're all on their phones. Like, where am I this week? How is that's good. That's there good. We go. I like that. We're fixing everything here. Oh so, what's Tennis, next for you right Jesus. now? Like, what's what's the schedule looking like? Uh, tennis wise, yeah, and podcast wise, Muncie, <laughs> Indiana, Tosh Kent. Uh, so I'm actually leaving Saturday for Dallas for a challenger. I don't know how much you know about. Yep. Okay, so for a challenger, and then I'll actually be coming back for the New York Open. Funny enough, you're talking about the Nassau Coliseum, which I can't call it the Nassau Coliseum anymore, which is actually hurts my soul. Well, we it's, got rebranded. It's like Mr. Pibbs Coliseum or something. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, the, it's like a bank. It's a bank now, and I'm sure they're gonna get upset for me saying that. Um, I'm gonna call it that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. But yeah, I grew up there. They redid it. So that's a 
third year they're having it there. So it's actually 15 minutes away from my house. Amazing. And if people want to find your work, where can they go? My work. Oh, God. Any social media, any online, behindtheracket.com, at Behind the Racket. And it's Racket with a CQU, right? CQU. You have to be a little fancy. Racket. Noah Rubin, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Yes. No, thank you for having me. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox, a, a hearty, robust mailbox this week. A full mailbox. Stephanie, would you do the J. Crew the honor of reading the first letter? This one comes from our pal, Kerrigan Kelly. She says, I'm finally getting to the mikvah on Wednesday. What should I get my rabbi to show her how much I appreciate all of the time and effort she's given me during this process? She's very bright, has a lot of books, of course, and I thought a rare book or antique piece? I don't even know where to find stuff like that here in Toronto. I've checked with local Judaica stores, but everything is new and she can easily get that stuff for herself. I'd love something random and unique. Do you have any ideas? This is a great question, and I love that Kerrigan has like had very reasonable questions along her sort of journey towards the mikvah, towards the you know, the end of her conversion process. And it's true, like, there are not, like, set answers of, like, well, what do you get the rabbi who converted you? I'm just dying to know, is this a tradition? Do I would love to hear from other Jews by choice. Did you buy your rabbi a present? I All I can think of is the tradition that some people have of husbands or spouses getting their wives who are birth mothers the, the push present. You guys remember when there were a lot mm-hmm. of articles about this? Like, what do you get her when she does you the honor of pushing out your baby? Which Sid and I always thought was the funniest thing in the world. So you're asking, is is it a thing for people who convert to Judaism to buy a gift for their rabbi? Or is Kerrigan Kelly just a way better person than all of you? I think she's bringing her Gentile good manners to the, to the Jews. Mark, you're going to love this. I've heard of a woman who was converting before she got married to a Jewish man and she got a push present for her conversion. Oh my God. Oh, wow. That's beyond. This is kind of like you've shared this personal experience with someone and now gift giving is so fun and easy, right? Like so many interesting things you can find. And I I feel like also after your bar mitzvah, maybe you give something to the rabbi who helped you. I mean, like this, this idea that like we've been through something together. The thing I think is really nice is when you get something that's like personalized, not like a monogram. Right. 
obviously. Monograms, I will say, not that Jewish. Gonna add no. that to the to the contender list. I got to college and saw a lot of monograms. A lot of like, monograms. What are those? Joke. Why is the or why are they out of order? <laughs> but maybe something that is like a personalized gift that says your rabbi's name or something like that. So look, Kerrigan, you had you had exactly the right idea. Books would definitely be the first choice. But here's the thing: there's a perfectly good second choice, which is go on russanddaughters.com. Oh. Order a, a big old box of smoked fish, and every Jew on earth would be very grateful for that gift. I'm feeling like I'm coming in a distant third here, but I had two ideas. One is, of course, not to be self-serving, but the NJE, the newest Jewish encyclopedia, she can always use an extra copy. If, if your rabbi has one, that's great. If if she has two, that's even greater. But something for which we don't get residuals, I was going to say make her a mixtape, but maybe it would be a, a Spotify <laughs> playlist. No, but seriously, like, wouldn't that be? I love it. And it would have some Jewish songs on it. It would have some songs you love. It would have, I don't know. I'm sure in the journey somewhere, you guys, music came up somehow. I don't know. It, it just, just get, make her it's a playlist. just that Leonard Cohen, Lafadoti, over and over right. again. Yeah. And by the way, and, and the best way to play that mixtape, keeping with the John Cusack metaphor, is stand underneath her window with a boombox yeah. Yeah. and hold it up above your head. Totally. That's I will you say, know, look, you cannot go serious. wrong with like a nice note. Like that, a note that she you. can put in her office somewhere and just remember the work she's doing. Because I, you know, it is, you 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 have these such intense experiences with people. And then theoretically, yes, they're part of your congregation and you continue to see them. But it's never the same after, right? Like you're never meeting with someone as regularly. I think that that would be really nice. But not unpersonalized stationary because that is not Jewish. <laughs> I don't know. What about like a from, a, from the desk of, from the mikvah of? <laughs> from the mikvah of. Get her a box of personalized stationery. From the desk of Rabbi, because so, she might not have some, and every I believe everyone can use some personalized station. I love that. Dear Unorthodox, I was raised in a Roman Catholic family, but have fallen away from the church. I'm in a serious new relationship with someone a few years older and Jewish. I've not met his parents, although he has met mine. He said early on that he plans raising his kids in the Jewish faith, which is okay with me. And a few weeks ago, he said he'd, quote, prefer his future wife also be Jewish, but it's not a deal breaker if she's not but I can't help but feel as if I won't be enough for him in the long run if I'm not Jewish. He did ask if I'd be open to converting someday, but we've tabled it for now. I've been looking into Judaism. It's appealing. The community and religion itself seem welcoming and understanding of all. My question is this, am I seeking Judaism for the wrong reason? And how can I learn more about the faith? Many thanks, S.C. Well, SC, you can learn more about the faith by purchasing the newest Jewish encyclopedia. Also, go find a synagogue. Make sure it's not a messianic Jewish synagogue. Make sure it's not Jews for Jesus. Knock on their door and say, can you tell me more about the faith? That's that's a way to go. Are you seeking Judaism for the wrong reason? I think uh, people stumble through the doors they stumble through. There are no wrong reasons. I mean, life takes you where it takes you. Yeah, I mean, but it doesn't sound like SC is being bullied into it. If anything, sort of the opposite. It's being very gingerly brought up. SC... We wish you well. If you have more specific questions, send them to us. In the meantime, Rabbi, Newish Jewish Encyclopedia, go with God. Gegesint, as the Jews say, as you will someday say. Um, hello. I wrote to you last month about searching for a non-gendered Hebrew name as I convert, and you answered my letter on the podcast. One of the names I'd really liked along my journey was Yael, in part because my husband's favorite cousin calls me Jor-El, father of Superman, since it rhymes-ish with my name Laurel or Laurel, but I just couldn't get on board with Yael because it's so traditionally a female name. So I turned to, lo and behold, the perfect Hebrew name was right there in front of my ears all along. Liel! I'm already an L. It pays a bit of homage to Jor-El since Liel is such a fan of comics and like Liel, I'm a big, tall person at six foot tall and not slim. It's unusual, like Laurel, and it's not gendered. Side question for Liel. What's up with the rhyming hyphenated comic book names? Jor, El, Mar, Vel, and aren't they in different comic book universes? All this is to say a big thank you with much appreciation and thanks. Laurel, Jorel, Liel. Um, what's up with the hyphenated names that end with L? Uh, aren't they in different universes? Yes, they are. But all these universes were created by Jews who are basically responding to the same rhymes that they have heard in the Bible with Yechezkel, Gavriel, Michael, etc. And so there you have it. But Laurel, most importantly, on behalf of the Union, the International Brotherhood of Liels, let me welcome you. We're a feisty bunch 
and we're very privileged to have you. Laurel, we're so excited for you. This is amazing. <laughs> this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. I think like we can end this podcast now. Game over. We've created another Liel. Another Liel. Another Liel. By the way, you're you're co-hosting that podcast when I'm on vacation <laughs> next month. Hi, Unorthodox. I heard the NOTJ item on Mel Gibson's slur against Winona Ryder, Oven Dodger. It's really not that clever. The truth is, is that it's a straight copy from the Aussie slang coffin dodger for old person. Wow, <laughs> coffin dodger is a slur for old people. But for my money, Mad Max 2, Road Warrior was the title, I think, in the U.S., was Mel's finest piece of work. I couldn't be bothered with anything after that. Keith Duddy. Keith, thank you so much for giving us the etymology of, of oven dodger. Wow, coffin dodger, that's such a horrible thing to call an old person. Guys, Australians, what's that's what's not wrong respecting with you your elders at all. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, next time I have a fight with one of my parents, I'm going to be like, "You, you coffin dodger, just slam the <laughs> slam the phone down, you slam will the not. cell phone down." You will wash your mouth out with soap. But, but, <laughs> young man, if they, next time they call me a whippersnapper, I'm going to come right back at them with coffin dodger. With a coffin dodger. If our podcast exists for anything, it is to get people to take the Hebrew name Liel or to give us the etymology of a Jewish slur like oven dodger. Like who else could have done this? We're in, in one week, we went from putting the slur out there. Of course, it's an old Mel Gibson classic, an old chestnut from it, but we put it out there last week. Boom. The J crew responds. Here's where oven dodger comes from. Aussie coffin dodger. Boom. J crew, you're welcome. And last week I put the call out. I need a name. We need Consuelo needs a Hebrew name. My little, little, little needs a Hebrew name. And you guys really came through. Here are some of your ideas. Hi, Unorthodox. This is Ahuva Odenheimer, a longtime listener. And I thought the name Khalil, uh, which kind of reminds uh, the name Consuela, it means something that is whole. So there's a saying in Hebrew, Khalil Shlemut. It's also a town in the Galil. Hi, my name is Clarissa. I just want to tell you that the word consuelo in Spanish means comfort. And the translation of comfort in Hebrew is nehama. So I think a great name for your friend will be nehama. Bye. Hi, Unorthodox. I thought the name Khaliva would be good because it's a very unique name and uh, means precious. And I don't know what Kutzwala means, but it sounds like a cool name, too. I found a name that unfortunately does not have the cosound alliteration, but I think still sounds nice with Consuelo and it would be meaningful. I suggest Zipora, which comes from the word for bird, Zipor, and most notably is the name for Moses' wife. She was an outsider, a Kioret, being a Midianite who joined Moses after falling in love with him. This was also reflected in the story of Miriam and Aaron attacking supposedly Zipporah for being a Cushite woman. She joined the Israelites as an important source of support for them and Moses. So I think it would acknowledge and celebrate Consuelo's history joining us through marriage as a Jew. So I am going to say that of all of those, I think Nahama for comfort, analogous to Consuelo, comfort in Spanish. I, beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful name. Beautiful. Nahama. I second that. If you have more ideas for Consuelo's Hebrew name, or if you just want to say hi or yell at us, we're at 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-4869. Or email us unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Back in January, Stephanie stumbled across an article in the Journal of Modern Jewish Studies, which is her night table reading, called Rachel Bloom's Gaping Maw, M-A-A-W, Jewish Women, Stereotypes, and the Boundary Bending of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Now, it's so rare that we find a scholar who takes Jewish television as seriously as we do. So we had to get her on the phone earlier this spring to discuss the shifting stereotypes of Jewish women. Our next Jew of the Week is Jenny Kaplan. Jenny Kaplan teaches religious studies and Jewish studies at Towson University, where she studies expressions of Jewish identity in American popular culture. Today, as we interview her, it is her birthday. So happy birthday, Jenny. Thank you. And the occasion for our conversation is her scholarly article entitled Rachel Bloom's Gaping Maw, 
Jewish Women, Stereotypes, and the Boundary Bending of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which recently appeared in the Journal of Modern Jewish Studies. Now, Dr. Kaplan, we here at Unorthodox thought that we were the world's leading scholars of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, but it turns <laughs> out that you are the actual credentialed leading scholar of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and it is a true honor to have you on our show. Well, thank you. It is an honor to be here. So your article posits a number of things, but one of the things it argues is that sort of the term Jap, the Jewish American princess, is outmoded and, and should be sort of sent to the dustbin of history. What you actually argue for is a different term in place of that. Can you tell us what it is? Yeah, so the term that I was working with in the article um, is the Ma, the modern Ashkenazi American woman, which I don't actually expect to catch on in the same way that Jap did because it's not nearly as catchy. But I think it's more descriptive of the fictional character type that we're actually dealing with because the Jap, of course, was a fiction to start with as well. It never really was a real person. It was a literary character. The Ma, the modern Ashkenazi American woman, it kind of hits to the fact that we really are dealing with a, a specifically kind of American Ashkenazi Jewish culture that isn't descriptive of all Jewish women. And so I think it's got a little more specificity built into it. Okay, so who's the maw? So the modern Ashkenazi American woman, she probably does have some characteristics in common with the old Jap stereotype. The characters that I'm seeing in this new model do tend to come from middle class or upper middle class backgrounds. They have an appreciation for nice things. But unlike the Jap stereotype, the Ma is both highly educated and generally ambitious, proud of her education. The the Jap traditionally was well-educated, but kind of vapid and was only in school to, you know, find a nice husband, whatever, you know, whereas the Ma is proud of her own academic credentials. She, you know, is frequently a lawyer, a doctor in some kind of business. She's much more sexually aggressive than the Jap stereotype. One of the hallmarks of the Jap is that she was supposed to be sexually frigid. And these contemporary Ma characters are much more sexually outgoing. So she has some of the older hallmark American Jewish stereotypes, along with a much more self-confident and less toxic personality. Something that's interesting that's in your acronym is Ashkenazi. And, you know, yeah. we on the show get accused of Ashkenormativity. We're really trying to work against it. And it actually never occurred to me that the Jap might actually be an Ashkenormative stereotype. Yeah, the fight against Ashkenormativity has been part of my dossier for the last few years. The struggle is real. Yeah, the struggle is real. Last weekend, I had run a conference that I spent the last two years organizing along with a colleague about global Jewish humor. And our design for it all along was that we wanted to highlight Jewish humor that was outside of the normal Ashkenazi American Jewish humor narrative. And almost every paper that we got for the conference was on Ashkenazi Jewish humor. So it was all it's Seinfeld. Kind of like, yeah, it kind of reinforced why we were doing it, but we failed at doing it. Are you arguing, though? I mean, on our show, we've had a lively debate where I really have always hated the term Jap. And Stephanie, as an Ashkenazi American woman, has been somewhat warmer. As you might say, a the... modern American Ashkenazi <laughs> woman. Stephanie's been a little bit warmer toward the use of it in certain in inside conversations, which she and her, her gal pals can, can drop it once in a while. I'm mortified by it. Are you arguing that, like, it's OK to have a stereotype? We just have the wrong stereotype. Like, let's just call women maws instead of Japs. Yeah, first of all, I don't think there's any value in arguing that it's not okay to have stereotypes because we will have them regardless of whether it's okay or not. And secondly, I am by no means trying to argue that groups cannot and should not try to reclaim and repurpose previously derogatory stereotypes. I think that that's fine. The reason why I think it's particularly problematic with the Jap is sort of twofold. One is that the Jap, unlike some of these other ethnic or sexual stereotypes and, and terms that have been reclaimed, she never was a real person in the beginning. I mean, she was a conflation of Brenda Patankin from Philip Roth's Goodbye Columbus and Marjorie Morningstar from Herman Wook's Marjorie Morningstar. And then it sort of made its way into movies and made its way into TV. And eventually then real live women started either personally identifying with it or being identified with it. But it, it didn't actually start out in reality, which makes it a little bit dicey. But more, my problem that I'm articulating in the article is that we keep changing the definition of Jap in order to fit new generations of Jewish women. But the problem is that the previous generations of Japs still exist. So like that's the issue with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is that Naomi, Rebecca's mother, 
is like truly that 1960s, 70s archetype Jap, spoiled and narcissistic and expects everybody to, like, she's toxic. But Rebecca is referring to herself as a Jap and trying to kind of like reclaim the term, although she seems ambivalent about it, and make it mean something new that'll apply to her while her mother still exists and is still the classic Jap. So kind of what I'm arguing here is that the problem is that we can't repurpose the term while the term is still being used by its first generation of characters, because then the term doesn't mean anything anymore. If it if it applies to both Rebecca and her mother, who are so very different from each other, then it really doesn't have any meaning anymore. So the amazing thing is Tova Felchew plays yeah. Rebecca Bunch's mother, and there's that whole song. And so my favorite part, I have to say, of your papers, where you quote from our the video we did about Is It Okay to Say the Word Jack, right. which is part of our live show, and Tova Felchew was there, and she talked about that stereotype in showbiz. And, you know, I think it's really interesting because something we were trying to parse with that episode of, is the fact that it's true the younger generation is trying to reclaim it in a way that a lot of terms are being reclaimed, and you go into that a bit in the paper. But I, what I hadn't thought about is that, like, if it still exists, you know, my mother thinks it's the worst word, that it's a horrible thing to call someone or be called, whereas I'm like, whatever, you know? But so I see it can't necessarily mean something completely unique to me if it still means something to her. Right. I love this. I love this idea. So, Jenny, what should we take away from this? First of all, should everyone be watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? Um, should we be reconsidering the nanny? Look, what, what do you want us to take away you know, from this paper and also more broadly about the work you're, tra- you're doing in terms of Jewish representations in pop culture? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Everybody should be watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. You know, I'll say the same thing that I always say is that you'll fall in love with season one. You just have to get through season two. Everybody sort of acknowledges that it's a little bit of a slog, but then season three and four turn such an amazing corner that it's worth it. Just, I think it's a a fascinating show. Um, And by all means, let's revisit The Nanny and some of these older shows that we maybe didn't think that deeply about the first time. I think that there's a lot to be gleaned from them. Um, And that's sort of, to the second part of your question, that's kind of my whole shtick, is that I want to make a legitimate place within conversations about Jewish identity and Jewish practice for all of the stuff that we have tended to write off as quote-unquote cultural Judaism. I look at the panicked think pieces about the decreasing rates of Jewish involvement among the unaffiliated. Yeah, the unaffiliated. Ah. You know, they they look at the they look at the millennials and they look at Gen Z and they see this this disaffiliation with Jewish life and everybody freaks out. And I think that the problem is that we're just defining affiliation with Jewish life too narrowly. And when people are doing things and they're doing things with a a Jewish consciousness and they're doing things a certain way because they're Jewish and, and because they think of this as a way of associating with Jewish culture, I think that that should count for something. And so I find in my research that 20-something, 30-something Jews, they engage with this material on a Jewish level, not necessarily on a halakhic level or anything like that, but they're like, oh, I get these jokes because I'm Jewish. I have this history of Jewish humor because I'm Jewish. You know, my grandparents went to the Catskills and this is how I carry on that legacy. And so if that's still part of their identity as Jews, and if that's something that they think they're doing Jewishly, I think we should be paying more attention to that. And so with all of my work, the stuff on humor, I've been working on graphic novels and comic books and, you know, other other types of popular culture. I really want us to start to take that seriously. And rather than just panicking that millennials and Gen Z are disaffiliating and Judaism is going to die and we're all doomed, maybe just stretch the boundaries of what Jewish engagement looks like. Jenny Kaplan, you are speaking my language. I want to come (laughs) audit all your courses at Towson University. Your latest paper is Rachel Bloom's Gaping Maw, Jewish Women, Stereotypes, and the Boundary Bending of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Our listeners can subscribe to the Journal of Modern Jewish Studies and read it. Jenny, please come back. You must tell us. We must talk about every new TV show as it comes out. Yes, I will come back anytime. We didn't even get to have the fight about Jewess. Honestly, your description in the paper is best because you say it, 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 the idea of the existence of Jewess means that the word Jew is male. And I'm like, yeah. I'm, on, I'm on board with that. Thank you for articulating that. <laughs> I also didn't realize is what I thought. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you.
Mazel tovs. Liel, do you have a mazel tov? Yes, you've just heard her beautiful letter. And since this week is her big mikvah week, Kerrigan Kelly, welcome back home. Stephanie? I have a Big mazel tov to my sister-in-law and brother-in-law, David and Sarah Silver. They just got a dog. His name is Bogey Silver. I'm an aunt. It's amazing. I'm so happy for them, and I can't wait to meet him. I want to give a mazel tov to all of the authors who have had books come out in the COVID season. From my host-in-law, Ben Cohen, a husband of Stephanie Butnick, to my friend Amity Gage, who wrote a novel called Sea Wife, which is brilliant. So many people have seen their creative work. And I would include filmmakers, I would include dancers, I would include actors. So many people have put work out into the world at a time when few people are consuming that work or fewer or it's harder to get noticed. That must be a very dispiriting thing. Do the cultural life of the world a favor and go find something that's not television or video games because those have held up strong. Those, in fact, have had a good season. And, uh, you know, throw a few shekels their way. Mazel tov to all of them. And finally, I want to say goodbye to civil rights icon and congressperson John Lewis, who died earlier this week. He was a tremendously important American, and I think we should all go read something about him and and know what he did during his life and what his life was like. Farewell, Representative Lewis. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave them on the listener line, 914-570-4869. Our newsletter is at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. That's where you subscribe to it, and then you get mail. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Kurt Hoffman, substituting for Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, and our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by New Yorker Elliot Cosgrove. And we come to you from scattered basement studios in Eastern Daylight Time. Shalom, friends. Seven seventy Beckham, Gowanus Beckham, Turtle Bay Beckham, Great Neck Beckham. We can't wait to attend your bris. <laughs>